Hello, everybody, and welcome back to the LawCast. This time, we're going back to cover the greatest night in the history of this great sport. It's WCW Monday Nitro, July the 6th, 1998. Kyush, how did it feel to experience the greatest night of my childhood? First of all, let me make something 100% clear. Like, if you go back in the archives and you listen to the Great American Bash 2007 show, which is the one with Bobby Lashley versus John Cena match, you'll get to hear me, like, unleashed at my most fanboyish. And tonight you're going to get Steve's because he's been so fucking excited to do this show that it's been wondrous to behold. This show kicks ass. I cannot blame you for this being one of like the great seminal moments of your wrestling childhood because this show is amazing. Yeah. There's so much <laughs> shit on it up and down. This was probably the this was the peak of WCW like this week where they pull off this incredible Nitro and then do the awesome and hugely successful Bash the Beach 98 pay-per-view on this Sunday. Like, what an insane week. Like, the only thing that stacks up against it I can think of is when the WWF bought WCW, did the, like, simulcast with Nitro, and then did WrestleMania 17 in the same week. Yeah, that's really the only thing that can compare. And that's... We kind of have to structure the show in a weird way because there's kind of two ways that we got to come at it from. There's the way where we're eventually going to discuss what becomes of this show, which is all bad. It's bad. It's 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 a very bad thing. But we that's almost not even fair because discussing it in the moment as like what it meant to be a fan of WCW and wrestling in general in this one week where all of this awesome shit is happening is really the way I want to come at it because that's just so yeah. cool to put yourself back in those shoes. Yeah, if you can, if you just live in the moment, this was as good as it gets. If you think about the long-term consequences, this was really kind of a disaster in the beginning of the end for WCW. But we'll we'll attack it from both angles. Um, as I always say, I would contend there was no better time to be a wrestling fan than the summer of 1998. Like. This couple-month period is just as good as it got, where you had both the WWF and WCW, like, at their peaks, doing incredibly cool and mainstream stuff. Um, and I, I will always point out that this is part of the three-year period that I did not watch wrestling yes. of the last 35 years. You missed all the good stuff. <sighs> Uh, like, as we all know, WCW's business has been super hot for the last couple of years since they did the NWO. And it's not slowing down is something I always need to remind people. What's happened is the WWF has taken off like a rocket ship in 1998 and surpassed them in the Monday Night Ratings battle. They beat them for the first time back in April, a couple weeks after WrestleMania. And coming into this show, I think they were on about a five or six week winning streak. Like it was pretty clear that the tide had turned and WCW was starting to feel the heat and like they needed to pull off something spectacular to turn things around. Um, the WWF has just put on the King of the Ring 1998 pay-per-view. WCW is about to do their Bash at the Beach pay-per-view where they've got Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone wrestling to explain just how mainstream that is game six of the 1998 NBA finals. You know, the last dance MJ's epic game winner that happened on June 14th. So like three weeks before this, I think it was a Sunday night if I'm remembering right. Yeah. Um, 
That's like maybe that might be the single highest rated NBA game ever. I know that's the highest rated NBA finals of all time. Like that's the peak of the NBA's popularity in my mind was right there. The all those storylines coming together, the Bulls second three peat, they pulled it off like MJ's going out under the best of all circumstances. Rodman and his insanity, Scottie Pippen and his unhappiness, like all these epic storylines culminate in this amazing game that everyone on the planet watched and somehow Carl Malone and Dennis Rodman shoot a fucking angle in the middle of the game and get into a wrestling match on the court yeah here's the thing this is the debate that we were having before the show started is that it is very difficult to say whether they had always planned on shooting an angle in the middle of the game which, if you think about it, would be one of the wildest things that anyone yeah. has ever done in sporting like, history. This is not a regular season game. This is game six of the NBA Finals where the Jazz are, like, fighting for their season, fighting for their lives. And, and Dennis Rodman and Carl Malone really agree, like, hey, let's shoot, like, let's get into a fight in the middle of the game to promote our wrestling match. And the question is, did they work themselves into a shoot or did they shoot themselves into a work? That's really the question. The fight happened. And, like, literally, if you watch that series, like, Carl Malone and, and Dennis Rodman fucking hated each other. Like, they they would defend each other all series long. It was a constant, like, active fist fight between the yeah. two. And we're talking at the end of an 82-game regular season, at the end of the playoffs. The idea yeah. that— Playing face- in the finals for the second year in a row— Rodman is the master of the mind games. He's always in Malone's head. Malone has got a temper. Like, everything is set for the big stage here. So when they do pop off and, like, suddenly, like, a wrestling match starts on the floor, it feels real. If you go back and watch the clip now, it doesn't seem like they've just decided to, like, start a work. Nobody gets body slammed on the court or whatever. They just – they don't even throw any punches. They just kind of, like – they're just scrapping. Like, they're just kind of – they're literally kind of wrestling with each other. Now, so the debate is – did they agree to do that before? Which would be frankly ridiculous from Insane. Carl Malone's perspective. Facing elimination, he'd yeah. be like, all right, Dennis, let's do our wrestling angle. Yeah. And, I mean, not that the Bulls, like the Bulls, Rodman was a key part of the Bulls. But if they both get tossed, like that's clearly to the Bulls' favor. Like the Bulls are going to be better without Rodman than the Jazz are without Malone. Malone is their star. Yeah, if Malone leaves, they lose, and that's the end of yeah, their season. No and question. They, they've lost. Yeah. Instead, as it happened, I think Rodman got called for a flagrant, so it was actually like advantage Jazz. They got like a shot and the ball, but you know, it didn't end up having a big impact on the game. Although. I mean, they call Robin for it. The game was, you know, a one or two point game. So there wasn't a lot of room to spare. So if we assume instead that they just got into a fight, the way Bischoff tells it is that like literally the next day he calls Carl Malone and it's just like, hey, buddy, you want to shoot a wrestling angle? Because DDP and Carl Malone knew each other because DDP was wasn't he just like at the Jazz's games during the regular season yeah. that year? And uh, Malone saw him in the crowd. Yeah, I think it was like Nitro was in Salt Lake City and DDP went to a Jazz game. Malone saw him in the crowd and threw up the diamond cutter sign. 
and then like had somebody from the jazz, like go get DDP and like bring him into the locker room so he could meet him. Like, again, this is 1998. Everybody watches wrestling. Like these guys are mainstream celebrities, but it's just crazy to me. Imagine wrestling on this scale. We're like the highest, highest, highest level of athletes. See a professional wrestler in the crowd and mark out for them. Yeah, they're like, oh, that's so cool. DDP's here. DDP's like the sixth biggest star yeah, in this company. He's not even that big a star. They're like, yeah, he's over and stuff. But like, no, he's nowhere near. Like, he's not Hogan. He's not Sting. He's not Goldberg. He's not even Kevin Nash. Like, yeah, yeah. it'd be like if you saw like macho, the Miz in the crowd and you had to yeah. stop running for a touchdown to be like, yo, it's the Miz. Yeah. Um, and. The best promotion of all is Bob Costas on commentary actually like mentions that they're going to be in a wrestling match. Like he calls it one of those awful phony wrestling contests or something like that. His voice dripping oh. with disdain. He's, this is after the Bob Costas Vince McMahon blow up has taken place. So Bob Costas is feeling about wrestling at this point. Probably not awesome. Yeah, Bob Costas was a wrestling fan growing up. And then he was like supposed to be at WrestleMania seven, but I think he was disgusted by the Sergeant Slaughter storyline and pulled out and just came to absolutely hate wrestling. Um, and just like the venom with which yeah. he's just like, it's clear in his mind that he Malone thinks that would lower himself to that is what he says. It's pretty clear that he, like, believes that they're doing a work on the court. And he's just like, this is fucking bullshit. How dare also, you sully the game? What the hell game? was the NBA thinking having Bob Costas do play-by-play? It's like the one and only time that I ever remember him doing it. Yeah. Yeah. Anyway. Um, so one really controversial thing that got this a ton more attention was Rodman missed practice to do an episode of Nitro. Yep. They cover this in the last dance. Phil Jackson, clearly disgusted, refuses. Like, they ask him, like, where Dennis is, and he just goes, I don't know, because Phil Jackson's not going to say the words, he was on Nitro last night. (laughs) He was on Nitro last night. He hit DDP with a chair. Didn't you watch? And it's just, I try to imagine it from Bischoff's perspective. The balls on Bischoff to even ask, like, hey, Dennis, you want to blow off yeah. your dynasty in basketball to come be on Nitro? Practice for the NBA Finals. But it got so much because this was literally the this was literally, I guarantee you, the number one page in the sports section, like in USA Today, in oh. newspapers all over the country. This was the top story on Sports Center. This was the top subject of discussion on talk radio. Like you couldn't buy this much advertising. Oh, every sports talk radio guy was the next day talking about this prick bastard Dennis Rodman thinks he's too good for basketball to do this, you know, ridiculous scripted wrestling show. Yeah, it's incredible. And then and you also have to understand, and I'm sorry that we're kind of geeking out on our 90s sports stuff because that's like our second biggest passion in life after wrestling. But, like, you need to understand what Carl Malone represented to a certain segment of the United States population at this point. He was, like, the great savior. Like, he was, like, 
the clean cut, nice guy going against like the evil empire of the Jordan dynasty. If you didn't like the Bulls, like Malone and Stockton were like the purity of basketball opposing them. So the idea of like this ultimate evil in Dennis Rodman versus this ultimate good guy in Carl Malone was just written for wrestling. Of course, I'm unique as a Detroit Pistons fan. I think Carl Malone's, even at the time, as a young man, thought Carl Malone was a scumbag and, you know, had a lot of affection for Dennis Rodman from his time with the bad boys. Generally speaking, the rest of us in the population didn't care for either team and hated yeah. them both. Yeah. I mean, I wasn't a Bulls fan because I was a Pistons guy, but, you know, I, was living I, in I didn't like the Jazz. Like, those guys are all a bunch of uptight. Like, that, that's not my kind of team. I was living in Southern Virginia at the time, which is so far away from any team that it's irrelevant. And basically... Like, the Bulls are the only team that existed. Like, I don't think that most people could have named another basketball team, but you could have named all five members of the starting lineup of the Chicago Bulls. People might have watched the Atlanta Hawks on the Superstation. Maybe. Um, just on another, like, 90s note, do you remember that the Bulls played the Hawks in a game at the Georgia Dome this season? I do. Just a little tie-in there. Um, yep. So Rodman paid WCW back by no showing this Nitro. He was supposed to be on this show and he didn't show up because he was on a bender. Um, he was the Pearl Jam concert the night before and they called him up on stage. He was shirtless, drinking wine straight out of the bottle. And like he was trying to sing along with Wonderwall and couldn't remember any of the words. I just want to point out that, like, while Dennis Rodman's whole life is basically a one long story of self-destruction and misery, Dennis Rodman's life in 1998 seemed pretty fucking rad. Yeah. I don't know why I just said Wonderwall. That's not a Pearl Jam song. I wasn't going to call you on that, but no. Probably Even Flow, whatever. Even Flow, yeah, that would have been the biggest song. Yeah. Um, so, for more context, King of the Ring 1998 goes down on June 28th. The next night on Raw, June 29th, Steve Austin beats Kane to win back the WWF title. That pops a monster 5.36 rating. That's the highest ever rating for an opposed Raw, and Nitro only does a 4.05. So Nitro gets buried, and that's for about the fifth or sixth week in a row. They've gotten absolutely smashed, like... Though, again, that's still an amazing rating to be doing. It's not oh bad. God, would you kill to do a 4.0 rating today? Like, like they, you would have to sacrifice animals to a pagan god to get to a 3. They bother to report what the rating is anymore because it's so low. They just say the overall viewership instead. Like, yeah. But, I mean, yeah. it, and it's... And that was really the thing is that WWE was growing the overall people who were watching wrestling. It wasn't just they weren't fighting over the same segment anymore. Instead of them both fighting over like a 4.5 total, they were fighting over a 10 total, which is like a totally different thing. But like WCW really didn't need to panic because they were still doing amazing. Oh, and they have this huge pay-per-view coming up and they have this huge nitro at the Georgia dome right after the 4th of July. They're going to do a massive house. Even like three weeks out, they've already sold 30,000 tickets. Like, This is going to be huge, record-shattering business. Now, a couple weeks out, they start promoting Hogan versus Goldberg as a dark match. And then, according to Bischoff, like, 
you know, a week, like I think basically the night after Raw did that huge rating, Hogan calls Bischoff and suggests that they do him against Goldberg on the Nitro and that he dropped the title to him. Um, lots of conspiracies surrounding this. Um, everybody kind of plays it off like, I don't know, like Hogan, what are they saying? Like Hogan wants to position himself as the savior of WCW. So he wants to be in the main event here so he can claim credit for the huge house and the rating. I kind of always thought that it was more that Hogan knows that it's all going to be about him after the pay-per-view, regardless of what Goldberg does. Right. Like it doesn't matter if he drops the belt to Goldberg here because the pay-per-view is still literally all about him. And he makes all of his money off of his percentage of the pay-per-view grosses. Well, so that's really what thing, matters. And the thing about it is because they've already drawn the house. Yeah. He could wrestle anybody. He, like you easily could have just done him against DDP here. And that would have been a great, huge main event. And sure. like whether he, DDP could beat him or they could do a DQ. But like in that, in any case, like they're going to draw the house, they're going to draw the rating and he's going to be in the main event and he's going to be the hero. He's going to be the guy who swung things back. Like, I don't think, is it that insane to think like Hogan just like thought Goldberg would be a good champion and they could do really well in a rematch against each other down the line? I think it's a little bit of both. Like, I, I don't I don't pretend to think that every single thought that Hulk Hogan ever had was this, like, self-serving, like, selfish, like, political mastermind move. He I do put, think he put people over in his career. It did happen. Like, if he, he thought he could make warrior. money with you, he would put, he put you put over. He put over Yokozuna. He put over Kurt Angle. He put over The Rock. Like, he would sometimes do jobs. Sometimes he would also be a complete shithead. That happened, too. It's they, mostly they could have done him and Sting here too. That would have been a good TV. Like, guess there wasn't probably money in another pay per view main event between them, but that would have been a big TV match. It just wouldn't have really fit with their current storylines. I just really think that he thought that he could, if he dropped the title to Goldberg, the rematch would be gigantic, right? So like maybe yeah. you keep them apart until like Starcade, then they get come that back win back, together. brother. Yeah, I'm sure that's what he was thinking, that that's just the way that Hulk Hogan always thought. Like, it's not, it's not crazy. Like, no. The belt always came back to Hogan. He was the guy here. And especially, like, he's thinking, like, all right, I got this totally different thing going on. It's even bigger than the belt. Like, I, I can ride this out for a little while. We can, like, do this Wolfpack versus black and white thing. Meanwhile, Goldberg's got the belt. When I'm done with my shit, we have the rematch. Big money. Boom. Like, that's yeah. just smart. That makes yeah. sense. Pretty just logical book in. So, like, why wouldn't he drop the belt here? Plus, you're, he does get to look like the hero. Like, it, it does do you political favors to do, like, a clean job every once in a while so people think that you can do business, you know? That's correct. Yeah. Like, hey, Bischoff, I'll give you the moment of WCW history. I'll do you the I'll do yeah. you the favors in the ring, and you'll be able to put it on clip shows forever. Yeah. But I just want that favor coming back to me, brother. What do you think of... I think the thing I don't I remember not being sure if Goldberg would win the title here because Nitro main events were always DQs. So I was right. kind of just thinking like they'll do the match, but the NWO will run in and Goldberg will just win by DQ and they can you know hold off on the big match until like Halloween Havoc or Starcade. Like, do you think that would have been the right way to go or is that too anticlimactic? Um. 
The problem is once you include Goldberg at all, I feel like he's got to win and he's got to win definitively. Like there's no way to skirt around it when you're dealing with somebody like him. Yeah. I mean, he hits the spear, he hits the jackhammer, the NWO hit the ring, DQ, Malone and Page come out for the save. And now Hogan afterwards is like, I promise you Hulkamaniacs, as long as I live, as long as I'm here on God's green earth, Goldberg will never get another title shot. And then Goldberg has to run through the entire NWO over the course of the next six months and win World War III to finally get a shot at Hogan. And he gets him at Starcade and he can beat him. I'm totally on board with that. I don't think that you necessarily have to have a first match between no. the two to do that. Yeah. You can, just have you can still have Hogan say that. Yeah. yeah, you can still have Hogan just be like, I'm never defending the belt against fucking Goldberg. He's got to beat everybody first. Yeah, and that gives you a six-month story. Because the problem with this, I mean, obviously the problem is they gave their biggest match away on free TV when they could have drawn a huge pay-per-view with it. But more so than that, the problem is they gave away the st- there was no story like yes. they could have spent they could have given you months of intriguing like story that would have hooked people. Can Goldberg keep getting through the oh who's he fighting this week oh this week it's Kurt Hennig like they could have had six months of Nitro main events of Goldberg versus NWO guys. You literally instead, could have put, like a graphic up on the screen of each yeah. NWO guy and just crossed yeah. one who's off. Who's next? Yeah, yeah, cross them off. And um, instead he gets the belt. And they have no heels. They have nobody yes. for him to fight. Like, when you look at this roster, it's all baby faces and Hogan. That's the biggest problem. They have when Hogan talk- and they have Bret Hart. Like, that's it for their heel side. When everybody talks about how this is damaging to WCW, they always mention that they gave away their biggest match, which they did, of course. That's millions of dollars. But that's not why. The problem is, is that the second Goldberg gets the belt, he has nothing left no. to do. His, but- his run is over. Yeah. When you look at what he does after that on pay-per-view at Road Wild, he's in a battle royal with the NWO guys in the Wolf Pack. He doesn't wrestle at Fall Brawl. That's when he was doing the thing with Jericho and he wouldn't get in the ring with Jericho. He wrestles DEP, who's a baby face at Halloween Havoc. He I think he didn't wrestle at all at World War Three. And then he drops the title to Nash at Starcade. Like, it's an awful title run. One of the worst of all time. Like, yeah. and, and like, if it wasn't not, for the He's GDP not the match, same afterward. No, he can't be. Because you've let all the air out. No. When he went, like, all of that building to Goldberg that you did, but not just Goldberg, all that building to Hogan that you did, all of, like, the heat that you layered and layered and layered and layered, you give it to Goldberg here, and then you just let it fizzle. Because there's nothing for him to do. If instead you wait until he's annihilated the NWO, he takes out Hogan, you have six months to build someone for him to work with next. Yeah. Whoever that may happen to yeah. be. You Maybe can, it's the Wolfpack. Maybe it's something else. I don't yeah, know. Reposition your pieces so that you have some heels ready for him to fight. Instead, when he gets the belt, he has no challengers set up. Now, to give you Bischoff's case for this, here's what he said. WCW is primarily a TV company. They're trying to keep Turner happy. This is how they built the Nitro brand, by doing things you weren't supposed to do on TV. And this is how they built Nitro into this huge hot property that made the company millions and millions of dollars. Now, it's hard to figure out what they actually made because the financials are so complicated with the fact that the company 
like they had the the that Turner owned the company and was just kind of giving them the time for free but not paying them a rights fee. Um and this huge TV rating helped them draw the big buy rate for the pay-per-view, which I don't think there's any question that this was the strongest possible go-home show for Bash at the Beach. Okay, but that's bullshit, and let me explain why. Is okay. that they've done stuff like this before on Nitro. What I kept going back to as I was thinking about this was the Lex Luger thing. Yeah. Luger Lex Luger Hulk. beat Hulk Hogan clean on Nitro to win the belt in the middle of the darkest hour, right? And, like, that let a little bit of the air off the heat. It was this big, awesome moment. But that's not the same as Sting doing it, right? Yeah. So, like, if DDP... That's the, that's the Hogan, counterpoint, is why didn't Sting beat Hogan for the belt exactly. on Nitro? Why they say, like, what's the justification for saving that for Starcade? And, and I like, honestly think it's because as much as we keep, like, mentally fantasy booking out this Goldberg story, I don't think they had that plan. No, maybe not. But else, I think they just panicked because yeah. Raw was kicking their ass. Like when they got that rating for Raw, that Raw had done a 5.6. I think they were like, we got to do something to turn the tide here. Or we're done. I mean, there's realistically like the huge rating here could not have been replicated by replacing Goldberg with any other wrestler. And I'm not going to pretend like it could. But like in terms of like the booking that they were doing at the time, if you just slot in DDP and he beats Hogan for the belt here, yeah. there's no difference. Yeah. And DDP can just drop the belt back to Hogan. Exactly. Like, wild. like that's totally fine. And then meanwhile, as soon as he wins the belt, Goldberg then could come yeah. out and be like, I want the belt. And he'd be like, no, get yeah. the fuck out of here. DDP is perfect for like the Dusty Rhodes quick title run. Like he's not a guy who's meant to be a long-term champion. He's perfect to like, you know, get there, catch the car, and then drop the belt back shortly thereafter. Exactly. And he's basically like the Lex Luger corollary of like, he's basically at the same point on the card here that Luger was then. Yeah. So they announced Goldberg versus Hogan for this show on Thunder on July 2nd. So that's Thursday, and the show is on Monday. There's barely any time to promote it. Like, in a sane universe, even if you're doing this on TV, you would at least announce it the week before on Nitro to have a full week to promote it. Yeah, that's just crazy. Like, you're really getting, you're not getting one single extra paying fan, and you're also not really getting many other fans to watch the show that probably weren't already going to watch it because you didn't have time to let people know. Yeah, I wonder how many people t- I wonder how many people tuned in not realizing they were going to get Goldberg versus Hogan. Like, it was a thunder on a holiday week, like, at the beginning of a long holiday weekend, like, right before the 4th of July. I'm sure a lot of people were on vacation. And you only found out if you listened to, like, a 10-minute J.J. Dillon monologue. <laughs> Which, the hell wanted to do that? I can't believe anybody didn't change the channel while that was going on. They just kept doing those over and over. <laughs> like, yeah. the fact that he was ever an authority figure who got, like, 10-minute promo segments is what just What an awful baffling. authority figure. There's so, there's so many better choices in this company. Like, Zabisco would have killed it in that role. Heenan! Heenan's yeah. right there! <sighs> okay, so to get into the show, it's Monday, July 6th, 1998. Um... 8 o'clock p.m. Eastern. This is when Nitro is three hours long and Raw is only two. So Nitro's first hour is unopposed. And then the last two hours are head to head. Um, We're at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, Georgia. Um, There are 
41,412 people in attendance. Bizarrely, they actually undershot it on the broadcast somehow and announced 39,919. The only time that's ever happened in wrestling history. In the WWF, they would announce this is like 60,000 the way they do there. They'd be like, oh, there's 60,000 people here. Like, and somehow WCW undershot it. That first shot where they sweep the crowd. Like, I knew how big this was, and, like, I was still stunned. Like, this is unbelievable. Um, 36,506 paid, so about 5,000 comp tickets. They sold out the configuration the stadium was set up for. They packed, like, every seat. The way this worked was they dropped a giant curtain, like, basically at the 50-yard line of the stadium and put everybody, you know, in the U on one end and then had seats on the floor, too. So, like, you know, basically the stadium is about, like, the stadium, I think it holds, like, 70,000 for football. So, like, for wrestling with a small set, probably, like, 75,000 would be if you pack the whole thing. They had half of it. It looks great. It looks amazing. Occasionally you catch, like, that there's empty seats, like, up at the top. But for the most part, it's just a gigantic, like, WrestleMania-sized crowd is what it looks like. I'm going to ask the question just because I'm curious as to what you would say about it. If they had given it a month of promotion. Oh, yeah. Could they have sold it out? Could they have sold out the Georgia Dome? Uh, it seems very likely to me. They'd already sold 30,000 before they announced the match. Like, they'd already sold almost all these tickets before they announced the match. Like, that's the biggest thing to emphasize is, like, Goldberg Hogan didn't draw this house. They were already tracking towards 40,000, like, people there before they even announced it. Yeah, Disco Inferno drew this house just as much as Goldberg and Hogan did. Like, Goldberg Hogan responsible for the giant TV rating. But, like, yeah, they were already going to, like, pack this place with 40,000 before this. They And they had done a they had done a Nitro at the Georgia Dome back in January. And I think it had done, like, 25 or 30,000. Like, this wasn't that uncommon. They would run a few Nitro stadium shows a year. They would do, like, over 20,000 people. That's fucking crazy. Yeah. And oddly, then their pay-per-views would be in, like, Tupelo, Mississippi. And, like, they'd only have, like, 20 people there because nobody gave a shit about their pay-per-views. Like, you could really, as we cover this, let's treat it like a pay-per-view because there's 12 matches and it lasts three hours and it's at the fucking Georgia Dome. It's a little exhausting to watch. And I just, I love the idea of kind of, like, treating this as if it were, in fact, a pay-per-view because then the card shapes up really fucking weird. They grossed $906,000. That demolishes the record. This I think Starcade had done like a $750,000 gate. So they blow Starcade out of the water. Jesus Christ. Yeah. Um, the only bigger like paid attendance numbers in American wrestling history to this point were WrestleMania 3. WrestleMania 8 and Royal Rumble 1997. And this is a way bigger gate than the Rumble 97 drew because they were just like giving those tickets away. Like here, the average ticket price is still like 20 bucks. That's pretty impressive for a stadium show. I just looked up just for reference, just because I thought it'd be fun. Do you know what the first pro wrestling million dollar gate ever was? Um... WrestleMania 4? The first million dollar gate 
is 1979's All-Star Dream Card with Giant Baba and Antonio Noki versus Abdullah the Butcher and Tiger Jeet Singh. Oh, uh, was that in Japan? Yeah, it was a combination of all of the different promotions okay. together for the first time. Yeah. But yeah, that is not the answer I was expecting. No. Um, uh, the show did a 4.93 rating, which easily beats Raw's 4.0 that night, but nowhere close to what Raw had done the previous week. Um, Raw is taped this week, so like they're not really trying to beat Nitro. Um, they just kind of seed things. Um, Hogan versus Goldberg did a 6.91 rating in 5 million homes for over 7 million viewers and an 11.8 share. So like, I think that means 12% of TVs that were on at the time were watching this. That's fucking, especially like you said, there's a really good chance people did not know until the night of, or possibly during the show that the match was even happening. So this was a lot of people calling their friends like, yo, yeah. it's fucking Hogan Goldberg. Like, literally, yeah. Like, they always, they always say that on the shows. They'd be like, you know, call your friends. I think people re- literally did it. Like, you can envision that. Called their friends on their landline phone to be like, hey, are you watching the wrestling? Dude, they're doing Hogan versus Goldberg tonight. That's how I tuned into the Raw where it turned out that they bought Nitro, is that somebody called me and told me about it. And I was <laughs> like, excuse me? Um, on commentary, we've got Tony Schiavone, Mike Tanay, and Larry Zabisco for the first hour, and then Heenan replaces Zabisco for the second two hours. I I always like how they change up the commentary team during the course of the show. Like, if anything, I would have probably an entirely different team for the first hour and then um, switch them out for the second and third hours. I never understood why they didn't just make the first hour Tanay's hour. Just put, yeah. like, Tanae and Zabisco on, it's and then the second the, hour... Because it was mostly the cruiserweights anyway in the first hour. Yeah, then the second hour and third hour can be Shivani and Heenan. Like, that's that's fine. Yeah. Um, yeah. Like it's actually... Said, an amazing like, shot when they first sweep the stadium. Oh, my God. Like, and just, like, chills. they do a great job of it, too, because it starts in the upper deck, so it doesn't look that busy. And then they just stream the whole floor and there's like 20,000 people just on the floor. And the, the sun is still out and the dome is like kind of translucent. So it's really bright in there. Like it looks incredible. Incredible. Yeah. Like really does feel like the Super Bowl in there. Um, uh, Shivani's in a tuxedo, which is a really nice touch. Um, they immediately start hyping up Goldberg versus Hogan and then the NWO music hits and Hogan and Elizabeth and Bischoff and the disciple come out to the ring. Um, Hogan says that he just got off the phone with Rodman and they talked about the game plan for Sunday. Um, this is cover for the fact that Rodman is not there when he's supposed to be. Hogan says that Goldberg hasn't beaten anybody yet and he's not in Hogan's league. He says the match isn't going to happen tonight because Goldberg is going to have to wrestle a mystery member of the NWO. And if he doesn't beat him, then the match is off. Um, I think that's a great hook to keep people watching through a three-hour show. Oh, yeah, because you can absolutely believe that, like, they screw job Goldberg out of this. Or, like, he gets disqualified. So WCW is just that stupid that they blow Goldberg's streak on that. Yeah, fucking Vincent beats Virgil's streak with a DQ. Um. As they're going to commercial, they ask a fan about the match and like 
this guy cut a super good promo here where he's talking about how like Hulkamania started in Madison Square Garden in 1985, but this ain't New York City. This is the ATL and Hulkamania ends tonight in Atlanta. This guy should have gotten a job. Like this is a killer promo. promo. Um, we come back and Mean Gene is talking about a contest they're running where you can win a NASCAR race car and they interview the guy who won the previous year. They used to do this shit all the time. All the time. I remember they used to give away NASCARs like left and fucking right. Because once they become out of commission, there's really nothing to do with those yeah. cars anymore. And NASCAR was really hot back then. especially yeah, it was. In- Hearing the name Mark Martin took me back to all the times my dad made me watch NASCAR in the living room. Oh, man. Um, That was one of the few good things they did on that first TNA pay-per-view was the NASCAR involvement. Yep. Like, that and Toby Keith were, like, the only two highlights. The only two things that they knew for sure their fans would give a shit about because it wasn't going to be any of their wrestlers. Um, and then the opening match for the TV title, we've got Booker T defending against Dean Malenko. Hell as yeah. I, as I always seem to say with a WCW show, that's a hell of an opening match. Like, those are two Hall of Famers in the opening match. Let me also say, like, I, I don't think that we can make enough attention of this. Booker T comes out here. Like, the first person to come out of the ring for this entire show after Hogan and Technically, the disciples, the first person to enter on this show, which is a big fart noise. But Dean Malenko comes out and he's just like, wow, that guy's unfortunately, Dean Malenko is a small dude, which you don't necessarily notice on like a normal Nitro. But when he's in the Georgia Dome in front of 60,000, he looks like Booker T, who's a big dude. He looks like super porky here. It's not good for him. But then Booker comes out and dude. I swear to God, I just saw, like, a big dollar sign, like, dancing down. (laughs) Like, Um, there's no... He looks like a bigger star than Goldberg. Yeah, we always, like, go on and on about this, but, like, this was their guy. Like, this is the guy who should have beaten Goldberg. Like, I I just... I can't help but, like, bring it up every time. Because he just looks like a star, and he's so bouncy and energetic. The fans are all raising the roof. And then on top of that, like, he's a good promo. He's a really good-looking dude. Like, he's got a really inspiring life story. Like, it checks every single box imaginable. And also, he can work the lights out. Because, like, he goes, like, move for move with Malenko here. And, again, we harp on this, too. But, like, if you've only ever seen Booker in the WWF, like, you gotta see this Booker. Because he's so much – like, he was still athletic when he was in the WWF, but he's way better here before his injuries. I will go so far as to say that I've never seen anybody as, like, Like, kinetic in motion as Booker was. Somehow his legs are, like, six feet long. Yes. And, like – And he can jump out of the gym – all of, like, the kicks and, like, stuff with his legs that he would do in WBF that, like, look kind of slow and whatever. In WCW, these, like, long legs with, like, tentacles would just come swinging out and smack people, like, off the top He's rope like a and superhero. shit. It's ridiculous. When he did uh, a missile drop kick, he'd clear the ring. He could have yeah. jumped from one side out the other. That's where the tiny WCW ring is nice, is it really does make these guys look larger than life. Yeah, for real. Like... I go back and forth on whether, uh, but I do like that aspect of it, that it makes all of them look huge, that the ring is so small. 
And it makes the giant look like 8 billion feet tall. Um, Booker's in control with his superior power. He hits a back suplex. He goes for the missile drop kick, but Malenko ducks it. Uh, Malenko goes for the Texas Cloverleaf, but Booker rolls him uh, into a small package. Uh, Malenko hits a drop kick and then a cross body off the top. Um, Booker catches him out of the air and hits him with a sidewalk slam. Then the Harlem sidekick and a flapjack. Malenko ducks another sidekick, hits a crossbody that sends them both out to the floor. Um, Chris Jericho comes out with a mic. He talks some trash to Malenko and challenges Malenko to wrestle him tonight. That distracts Malenko for long enough that Booker hits the axe kick and uh, gets the pin. Uh, pretty good opening match, but like man, it was only like three minutes long. I would have loved to see these guys get ten minutes. All these. Again, there are 12 matches yeah, they on this They fly show. through the matches. They're just getting guys out there, letting them do some spots, and then going home. Like, I appreciate keeping things moving, but when you got a three-hour show, you can afford to give a match like this a little time. Also, as we go through this, just remember all the matches that they chose to put on instead of just giving more time to this match that they knew would kick ass. Like, you guys could have just fucking gotten out of your own way here. Uh, we go back to a shot of Goldberg warming up for his match. He's doing push-ups, like, elevated on chairs. This looks so cool. Like, Goldberg has one of the best physiques in wrestling history. We all know this. But, like, watching him do shit like it's that. ridiculous. Like, not, like, an ounce of his, like, body fat on him. Like, literally, like, he looks insane. Uh, when we come back from commercial, we've got a pre-tape with Carl Malone sitting backstage. He complains that him and DDP drove all the way from Utah and Rodman didn't show up. He says he'll see Rodman this Sunday at Bash at the Beach. Um, pretty decent little promo here. Carl Malone wasn't bad at this. Like, he's a little bit of rap. I'm sure, like, I'm sure DDP, like, made him do his promo a hundred times for him, knowing how meticulous he is. But he still puts a lot of personality yeah. into it, which I appreciate because that's not something Carl Malone's really known for is a, a ton of personality. Uh, then we've got Canyon versus Raven. Um, Canyon jumps Raven in the aisle. They go in the ring. Canyon suplexes Raven on a chair. Uh, Saturn shows up and attacks Raven, and that's a disqualification. Disqualification in a Raven's rules match. Yep. Saturn hits Canyon with the Death Valley driver. The announcers say he didn't know who it was because they're <laughs> supposed to be friends. They keep, they just keep, I wish they, I almost wish they, because they keep doing this in this segment. I wish they just kept going and going like, oh, Saturn's got Canyon in the rings of Saturn, but he doesn't know who it is. Just um, somehow like Saturn has like blind blood rage. Like he's a barbarian. He has face blindness. Saturn sets up a table he hits Raven with a splash, and it doesn't break because it's a real table, not a gimmick one. Ah, and it looks painful oh as shit, God. too. This, there's certain tables that are just kind of scary. Like, when you see one of those, like, old, like, really giant tables, like, set up at somebody's graduation party, and it's like, I don't think I would want to move that thing. I think it would rip my arm off. This is yeah. one of them. This is, like a, this is like a door with legs on it. And he does, like, one of those ones that's, like, the most painful possible way to hit a table, which yeah. is, like, right with the top of your solar plexus, so it drives all the wind out of you. <laughs> then Canyon hits the flatliner on Saturn, and the announcers again say he didn't know it was Saturn. Oh, man, he must have thought it was Raven, except he doesn't Bald. look much like him. Yeah. 
Um, a limousine pulls up uh, outside and Buff Bagwell and Judy Bagwell get out of it. Um, Bagwell is in a neck brace and being pushed around in a wheelchair. This, I think, is the first time we've seen him since he suffered a legitimate neck injury against Rick Steiner on Thunder back in April. That was a really scary moment when it happened. They were live and like he hit his head like going down on the Steiner Bulldog and just like didn't move for 10 minutes. We thought he was paralyzed. Now, what do you think of some people have said over the years that this was a huge missed opportunity for them because he could have come back as a pretty enormous baby face? Yeah, I, I think it was. I, I agree. Like, we'll talk about the reaction he gets later when he comes out. But, like, as much as Buff Bagwell's a natural heel, like, I think this was their – they could have made him a baby face with this. He gets a huge reaction when he comes out here. Like, imagine the reaction he would have gotten when he walked out instead of coming out in the wheelchair. Absolutely. And, like, at this point, too, isn't – like, Steiner's in the NWO now, right? Uh, it was Rick who paralyzed him, but Scott is in the NWO. Like him and Scott, him and Scott are friends now right. in the NWO. Like eventually they do the double cross. I was thinking it was on this show, but it ha- that happened later. It turned out. Even so, like that's so for them to just use this just to do like a like a boring ass double cross angle for the NWO yeah. was like, like just so for the millionth time. Yeah, like how many times do we have to watch the NWO do this? Um, they they recap Nitro the previous week where Malone and DDP drove a semi truck to the arena and then hit Hogan with chairs and Malone slammed Hogan to a huge pop. That was another fun build where it's just like they were saying they had driven the semi truck cross country and they showed it like, you know, tra- all night. It was like, oh, they're getting close to the arena. Oh, they're going to be here soon. And like, I just naturally assume that when they do angles like that, like they're not actually going to be in the car, like it's going to be some kind of swerve or something like that. But watching like the NWO guys try to stand in front of of, like a semi truck to get it to stop, like, no, you can't go Hart Hogan, please stop. It's pretty Um, funny. Malone probably actually drove the thing. I think he was like a, like his dad was a truck driver. Like, I think he like owns some semi trucks. Like, I don't think he drove the thing across country or anything, but he probably was the one driving it into the arena. How much fun do you think Carl Malone had with all of this? This he's having the fucking time of his life here. Like he is like a kid in a candy store doing this. Like, unfortunately, Dennis Rodman's probably a little too drunk and high to really yeah. have a lot of fond memories of this time. But like this was all, all this was always a dream of Carl Malone's. Yeah. Like probably grew up watching Mid South Wrestling in Louisiana. Probably. I, I mean, you just you know he's a wrestling fan. Like, there's no question about that. Yeah, absolutely. Like, you again, we've mentioned this with celebrities in the past, but there are just some celebrities who can yeah. just see it in their eyes. Like, this is all they've ever dreamed of. Uh, mean Gene is in the ring when we get back. He brings out DDP and Malone. They look so cool together. Even though, like, DDP somehow manages always to look cool while also wearing like the most disgusting looking garbage clothes and like jeans and fanny packs. He just possesses coolness. Yeah. Acid washed jeans and his dirty scraggly hair. And like Carl Malone, who has never been confused for someone cool ever in his life is like getting a lot of that, like residual coolness. Oh, um, 
uh, Malone says he's going to whip Rodman the way Madonna should have whipped him. He says he'll be the Rodzilla killer. Good promo. Crowd is going crazy. Yeah, as awkward and stilted as his actual lines are, like, you can just tell that he means it a little bit. The Madonna line gets a huge pop yeah. from the crowd. Um, and then we come back from commercial with a pre-taped promo from Steve McMichael that's, like, shockingly good. Uh, he talks about his football career, playing for the Chicago Bears, being an all-pro, winning the Super Bowl. They interview Mike Ditko, talks about how tough he was. And then Mongo asks Arn Anderson to bring the horseman back. He says, open that barn door and let the stallions loose. We want to feel that wind sting our face. This is by far the coolest thing Mongo ever did. It seems like apropos of nothing that this, like they even do this. Like it doesn't, this is, this is when they, they do bring the horseman back a few months after this. Their te- this is when Flair comes back in Charlotte. That's one of the great WCW moments of all time. It is pretty fun that, like, McMichael has, like, a major part in yeah. bringing the Horsemen back. Because, like, Steve McMichael objectively sucks. And, like, but who, it's... But no, who else could do it? Because Arn is retired, and yeah. Benoit's not going to carry this kind of thing himself. Like, Mongo was actually a pretty good talker. He had personality. I completely agree. Like, for all that we bag on Mongo, and he deserves every single bit of it, because he sucked in the ring, unlike, <laughs> to such an extent that it almost doesn't bear repeating. Awful that doesn't rest. matter. Like he he did have his entertainment value. Oh yeah, like he was a good like he wasn't really a good. I don't know. They never found the right role for him. I feel like, but there was something to just the fact that they were guaranteed to draw in Chicago because of him. Like he was perfect. He could do get on any Chicago radio show. He was perfect for when they would do the on sale events in Chicago, and that was one of their big markets. And like if I like I'm a Chicago Bears fan. If I had seen like Mike Dicka come on to praise. Steve yeah. McMichael at the time, I would have lost my shit. Like that that's fucking cool. Next up, inexplicably, we've got Scott Putsky versus Scotty Riggs. Uh Putsky comes out in what can loosely be described as a pirate jacket. Yeah. Um this is a match between two people who I frequently forget which is which, so it was very confusing to have them in the ring together. Yes. What the Riggs fuck was is the, the point one with of the this? Eye patch. It, they're trying to get Putsky over. But it's not. This is like 10 years after WWE tried to get Putsky over. That was only a year before this. Oh, wait, no, I'm thinking of David San Martino. Never yeah. mind. You're yeah. right. You're David right. San Martino also shows up on some nitros around this time. Jesus Christ. Just doing yeah. favors for old men left and right. Yeah. So, of course, Scott Putsky is the son of Ivan Putsky, who was a big star in the World Wide Wrestling Federation. Um, he worked in the WWF a little bit, like when they were starting the light heavyweight division. Uh, he blew, like he got a pay-per-view match at Ground Zero uh, in September 97. He blew his knee out. And like that was the last we saw of him in the WWF. Um he gets the win after a couple minutes with a spine buster. Like it's just it's an enhancement match for a guy who was never gonna get over. He's got a nice look. He just doesn't have any charisma. It's just one of those things where like the vast majority of second and third generation wrestlers suck and are bad. And like are only here because of nepotism. And like it really gives the rest of them a really horrible name. But it's just a wonder, like, if his name wasn't Putsky, there's just no, no fucking way Never he ever gets a chance. Match, no. Yeah. 
Um, they showed Goldberg's debut victory over Hugh Morris in September 90, 1997. I love that they showed these Goldberg highlights throughout the night. I was only mad that they didn't show any Jerry Flynn highlights. <laughs> Those were his best matches. Fuck yeah, they were. Uh, second hour begins with Pyro. This is 9 o'clock Eastern. Uh, this is when Raw would be starting, so they're opposed for these next two hours. Uh, that Raw had been taped the previous Tuesday night in State College, Pennsylvania, on the campus of Penn State University. This is when they were doing, they would do a live Raw, and then they would tape the next week's Raw the next night on Tuesday. I think they were doing that until about mid-99, if I'm remembering right. When did they stop giving away the results of Raw? They, I don't think they did that for very long. I think they only did that, like, at the very beginning of Nitro, like, for the first, like, few weeks of Nitro. I mean, they did it with, like, the Mick Foley title win. Yeah, was that, a, was, that was – I didn't think they did that very often. Like, okay. That was kind of a rare one. The other, the other thing that was kind of rare is they usually didn't do big stuff on taped shows, but that was, I think, just the way the schedule worked out there. Normally, if something big was going to happen, it was going to be on a live one. Fair enough. Happenings that night. Uh, this was the night DX did their parody of the nation where they all wore blackface. Oh, a very interesting night in wrestling history. Yeah. Uh, the show was built around a triple threat match with Kane and The Undertaker and Mankind, where the winner would be the number one contender for the WWF title. Um, Undertaker didn't show up, and then Kane hit Mankind with a chair and tombstoned him and pinned him and then ripped off his mask to reveal it was actually The Undertaker. That was a pretty good twist. I knew that there was a thing that happened where Undertaker wore Kane's mask, but I never knew the context until now, so that makes sense. That was it. And I feel like they did the... I think they at least teased that a few other times that summer, where it was like, is it Undertaker dressed as Kane? Is it Kane dressed as Undertaker? Like, have they switched places again? That's pretty cool. Um, a limo arrives and Scott Hall gets out. This is the first time we've seen him in a while. I'm pretty sure he had been in rehab. I mean, he looks fantastic. He always does. He's just yeah. one of those guys. Yeah. Like even for him, he's looking pretty damn good. And then Chris Jericho comes out. Um, JJ Dillon starts to make an announcement when, Dean Malenko interrupts them. Malenko warns both of them that if there's any physicality between the two, whoever does it will lose the match at Bash at the Beach. So Jericho starts goading Malenko. He says that his mother wears army boots. Uh, Jericho says his dad would shake his hand if he wasn't dead. Um, Jericho says that Malenko's dad spent a lot of time away from home when Malenko was growing up, and he points out that Malenko and his brother don't look anything alike, which implies that you know, his dad is not actually their dad. Um, it's also true. They do look nothing alike. That sends Malenko into a fury. He beats up Jericho and has to be restrained by security. Um that was a pretty hot angle, and it set up a great surprise where Rey Mysterio would return and take Malenko's place at the pay-per-view. I, the fact that this Dean Malenko angle gets so over that it results in like one of the biggest pops in WCW history where he pulls off the mask and it turns out that he was Cyclope. Such a great moment. Like, but it's Dean, 
Like, Dean Malenko could very easily be Scott Putsky. He's an, a fantastic in the ring, but he has, like, yeah. literally zero charisma, especially he, at this point. He gets some he later. Just, he had an intensity to him. Yes. Like, he was not a good talker, but there was just that silent, brooding, I'm going to kill you intensity that he had. And he had a credibility to him, which definitely, yeah. like, made him, like, a good baby face when it came to, like, a shithead like Jericho. But yeah, this was, was just, the best program of his career. Him and Jericho had amazing chemistry. And it also just must be said that, like, that's how hot WCW is at this point. Yeah. That people who would never in a million fucking years become stars are just becoming stars. Uh, then we've got Ultimo Dragon versus Chris Jericho. They wrestle for about a minute, and then Malenko shows up again and attacks Jericho for a DQ. Um, security once again shows up to restrain Malenko. Doug, Doug Dillinger and his crew of dudes, dudes in dad, dad jeans. At least he didn't rip him off a cage and sprain his fucking ACL. <laughs> yeah, he learned his lesson. Um, when we come back from commercial, we see that Malenko was arrested during the break. Fucking Stone Cold Dean Malenko. He's the Iceman. He is Stone Cold. Uh, Then we've got, again, inexplicably, Johnny Swinger versus Chavo Guerrero. I was forget Johnny Swinger was in WCW. He looks like a gigantic asshole when he comes out. He also looks like he's approximately four feet tall and 100 pounds. Like, he does not look like he... He looks like an indie guy who just got a ticket and jumped the guardrail. He gets on the mic and he asks the crowd if they know who he is and everyone yells no. Like, what did he expect them to say? (laughs) He says he's the hottest young commodity in wrestling today. Fact, he is not. Um, They gave him mic time in front of like 40,000 people. They're trying to get some young guys over. (sighs) Chavo has been doing a crazy gimmick. Um... He has to wrestle his Uncle Eddie at Bash at the Beach. He comes out with a hard hat for protection because Eddie cut his hair last week on Thunder. They have kind of a basic match that goes on longer than it probably should, and then Chavo hits the Tornado DDT to get the pin. Um, He gets on the mic after the match, and he challenges Eddie to make their match at Bash at the Beach a hair-versus-hair match. Chavo Guerrero would later in his career actually become a pretty decent actor. Like he yeah. would carry on like some really good storylines. His feuds with like Ray and Eddie were like really good and interesting. Boy, he is not doing any of that shit now. <laughs> it's not a good talker here at all. My God. Like, and they give him. But again, having... this leads to the, a great moment at the pay-per-view where he has to wrestle Stevie Ray before he can wrestle Eddie and when he shakes Stevie's hand in the middle, at the beginning of the match, he submits immediately. One of the smartest things in wrestling history, yeah. yes. And the crowd got it and popped huge when they figured it out. Like, I don't have any problem with Chavo. They're just asking him to do yeah. a character, okay, which is us. fucking wildly difficult. To portray, like, a comedy crazy person is hard. Uh, They show Goldberg's 25th victory, which was over Glacier, and then they show him warming up some more for his match. Heenan worries that he's overtraining for the match against Hall and he won't have anything left for Hogan. We should probably mention, like, Heenan is... is 
He's he is so in the camp of Goldberg. And it's weird because he's like the only baby face I ever remember hearing Bobby Heenan root yeah. for. That's I may, that made me love Goldberg even more though that even Heenan liked him. Yeah, and it's mostly just that Heenan fucking hates Hulk Hogan and wants him to die, which is yeah, something that we all understand. Sense. Like, the idea of an announcer who actually remembers the slights that a man commits. Like, yeah. like I, I can't even remember all of them, but, like, there are some announcers sometimes who would be like, yeah, I always root for the heels, except for this motherfucker. Yeah. Because like, remember, I, like, I, I hate that uh, Jerry Lawler liked the Hart Foundation. Yeah. Jerry Lawler still should. When they, when they when Brett turned heel in 97, Lawler should have still hated the Hearts. And, like, I, this is what Corey Graves is trying to do these days with, like, Sasha Banks. It's yeah. like, when he was in NXT, she betrayed people, like, five times. So he just always remembers that. And whenever he sees her, he's like, oh, there's that backstabber Sasha Banks. Because to him, that's the reality. That's the way Heenan would feel about Hogan. He's hated Hogan his whole yeah. life. Yeah, it's, so that – like, he always cheered for whoever it was against. So he would cheer for the faces against Hogan in the NWO, which I thought was a good bit of continuity. But this is more than that. Like oh, he, he is, yeah. He is losing his shit. For, he's w- literally worrying in this segment. Like, oh man, I feel like Goldberg's overtraining. Oh, I'm yeah. really concerned he what, won't have enough. What, if, what if he overdoes it? What if he's flat for the Hogan match? Like he's literally going into manager mode yeah. to be like, oh man, oh I'm so concerned. Uh. Next up, we've got Public Enemy versus Disco Inferno and Alex Wright. Um, Disco and Alex get separate entrances so they can both dance. And Tokyo Magnum comes out with them and he's like their hanger on young boy. Like the idea of the Boogie Knights is one of my favorite because these love this team. Disco Inferno and Alex Wright were in this company for so long without ever really doing anything. (laughs) And. Disco was always over, though, because it's such a great character. Like, as much as he's an annoying scumbag in real life, like, it's a great character. He was a great performer. It's such a perfect character to sell to people who don't know your product already. Yeah. Like, you don't have to know anything about you Disco. As soon as you hear it. the music and see him, you get, you get it and you hate him. Yeah, he's like the ultimate house show wrestler, right? Because, like, you don't need to know who he is. Uh, and Alex Wright never got over even for one second his entire career, but I love him. The Alex Wright dance is the single greatest dance move that's ever been invented. Have you ever done the Alex Wright dance in public? No. No. I, I fear what would happen if I did that. I uh, have. <laughs> I've done it at many weddings. I'm just going to put that out there. Oh, uh, the announcer's. Um, so then the public enemy come out in yellow Braves jerseys. I've never seen these before. The public enemy suck. Yeah. And they look like some bunch of jabronis. <laughs> and I feel horrible saying that because they're like, but for people who are like so seminal and like the, the history of the time, like you can't tell the story of the attitude era without mentioning the public enemy, <laughs> but Holy God, they suck. In the time they got stiffed by the APA. Yeah, they did. Um, the announcers talk about the main event and say they'll stay with it until it ends, and that's always been their policy. Fact, that was not always their policy. There were multiple times they cut off main events while they were in progress. 
I do love them feeling like they have to say that that's always been their policy, yeah. just blatantly. Yeah. Just say, well, like... And the fact that they feel the need to say this is to be like, no, we're not going to fuck you over this time and go off the air while the match is still going like we did with Sting and Hogan. We promise. But, like, you could even sell it even more by being like, this time, we have clearance, we're yeah. not going off the air, no, no. matter what. We, we are staying with this match until we have a finish. Because that would put it over more. Um... So the public enemy is trying to put them guy, the guys through tables. Tokyo Magnum makes the save. Wright and Disco go to walk out. So Grunge and Rocco stack the tables, and then they do their swanton bomb move through both tables on Magnum, which I would not volunteer to take. Yeah, that he does not look like he's having a good dude. time. Yeah, <laughs> coming down on you like that after he's springboarded off the ropes. Um, and then Disco and Wright sneak back in and they hit Public Enemy with trash cans and that's a disqualification. Like, we can't. why can't we get a finish to this match? Like, why do we have to have so many DQs on TV? Who are we protecting here? Yeah. Like, what, what's, what's the point of this? Oh, God, we can't beat Disco Inferno. Yeah, fucking Alex Wright can't take a pinfall loss. Okay. Uh, then Mean Gene brings out Buff Bagwell, who's an Atlanta native. As mom wheels him out in the wheelchair to a huge reaction. Gene says uh, Bagwell nearly died in intensive care. Bagwell says he loves Atlanta. Talks about not knowing if he was going to live or die and thanking the fans for their support. He says he's thankful just to be able to feed himself at this point. He says he's done with Scott Steiner in the NWO. He thanks his mom for her support. And he says he's buff and he's still the stuff. Um, Like I said, at some point after this, they do a thing where he brings out Rick Steiner and like they reconcile, but then Scott Steiner shows up and jumps Rick and like Buff acts like he's fallen out of his wheelchair, but then he pops up and poses and it's a heel turn. I thought that happened here, which I was like, oh, I can't believe they blew this moment because this is a great moment. It is a great moment. And like it further reinforces that they did not have to do that stupid bullshit turn later on. Because he gets over huge as a baby face here. And I think he would have been over and ever. Like, and you can really milk it to, like, I don't, if I'm understanding things right, he was not at, he didn't need to be, like, he could walk. He was fine. Like, he, yeah. he just, I think it was just a stinger, it turned out. But, like, he needed some time off to recover. But, like, he was fine at this point. Like, they were faking the wheelchair thing. Like, imagine the reaction when he walked out the next time instead of being in the wheelchair. Or, like, what if you do the thing where, like, he and Steiner, Rick Steiner reconcile, and then Scott yeah. comes out, knocks him out of the wheelchair, and then, like, all hell would have broken loose. Yeah. And it then, just, like, you could set like up a they match. Just, they went for the cheap heat. It got a lot of heat when they did it, but, like, after that, nobody cared. Yeah, the long-term heat is what you should be aiming for, and they get none of that. And then Buff is basically irrelevant for the rest of his career. Like, this was his one shot to be, like, a next-level star. Uh, they showed Goldberg's 50th victory, which was over Rick Fuller, and Goldberg versus Hall is next. Um, we come back for Pyro. We've hit the 10 o'clock hour, uh, one hour left to go in the show. I do wish this had been a two-hour show. Like, three hours, as we've seen with Raw the past 10 years, is way too much. That's the first thing, like, when you asked me, like, what I thought of the show, the very first Long. words out of my mouth were, this was an unbelievable two-hour yeah. show spread across three hours like there's not three hours worth of shit here no you could have cut half these matches 
You should have cut half. At least half of the matches on this show don't exist for any real purpose. Like it, it or you could have combined a couple of them to like just get a couple of storylines in at the same time. You didn't need to do it this way. Uh, next up, we've got Scott Hall versus Goldberg. Um, U.S. title is on the line. Goldberg needs to beat Hall here to get the shot at Hogan. Hall comes out first. He's looking cocky as ever. Goldberg comes out to a huge reaction. Um, like, obviously, the Goldberg chant is piped in, but the crowd is going wild. It is very funny to me that they pipe in that Goldberg chant because they don't really need to. No, and it's they're not chanting Goldberg, Goldberg, but they're still popping enormously for him. And it's the most obvious piped in chant imaginable because it's so perfectly in sync, like no chant would ever be. And when you look at the crowd, you can see like there's a few people chanting Goldberg, but not nearly enough to make it that loud. Yeah, it, it, it did feel cool, but it was not really necessary. Yeah, it, it's just basically part of his pyro is like this is the part where we put in the fake Goldberg chants. Uh, they lock up. Goldberg throws him across the ring. Hall starts to work on Goldberg's arm, but Goldberg overpowers him with an STO. Um the crowd is so into him, it doesn't matter. But man, is gold. There's, there's so many times you can see Goldberg is lost in the ring. It is. There are multiple times where you can see Scott Hall literally thinking, like, "What the fuck am I supposed to do <laughs> with like this guy?" Trying to position, trying to position this massive, out of control beast. Especially like, on this night, because he's yeah, so hyped so up. Jacked up, like he's. I mean, not a lot of people have wrestled in front of a crowd this big, but yeah, like just imagine walking out there in your hometown, like your entire family is there. You're going to win the world title in front of 40,000 people, how jacked up you'd be. And he was always a guy who would get a little too into it and like hurt himself and his opponents. The ultimate warrior parallels are obvious, but incredibly, yeah, there's like a moment right towards the beginning of the match where Goldberg throws uh, haul into the ropes and then he comes after him to do a clothesline but he gets there way too yeah. fast like hall hasn't even hit the ropes yet and he's clotheslining him and he knocks him down you could just see the look on hall's face like fucking hell i'm just gonna try not, not to get doing. injured yeah um hall tries to slam goldberg goldberg overpowers him with a huge slam um hall dodges a charge into the corner hits a back suplex but goldberg kicks out at one uh, Goldberg hits a couple nice, like, Ricky Steamboat-style arm drags. Goldberg's moveset is one of the things we don't really talk about with him all the time. Such a it is like mix. It's like the greatest creator-wrestler moveset yeah. anyone has ever done. Just like, oh, yeah, roll through leg grapevine? Sure. Like, I don't know, like, press slam into, like, a choke slam spine buster? Yeah, I could do that. Like super literally, kick, sure. Anything he wanted to, do. and like people didn't do that. Scott Hall's move set in this match is kick to the gut, yeah. punch, pose. <laughs> oh, he'll just bust out a random backflip sometimes. He was doing like cruiserweight and MMA shit at a size where like nobody his size in, in wrestling at this point was doing any of this stuff. Like not even close. They weren't even trying to. Yeah, and like the MMA stuff is kind of weird but it just it's just kind of cool like 
it, it always feels weird when he would like take a guy down and get him in an arm bar, like a lag lock, but it was just kind of cool that it was something. So something you just so wouldn't expect from him. And that's the thing is all it really is, is just incredible that like it was different. Everything yeah. about Goldberg was different, even though the booking was booking. We've seen a million times before. Um, Hall bails out of the ring and calls for reinforcements. Uh, the disciple and Vincent come down, but Malone and DDP and hit a show up and hit them both with chairs. Hall hits a clothesline. He signals for the outsider's edge and uh, sets up for it, but Goldberg gets out with a huge backdrop. Yeah, he and does. then he hits a spear and a jackhammer for the pin. Um, great carry job by Hall. Like he made Goldberg look awesome here. Like to the point where like you really realize as this is going on, like man, they should have made this like an angle, like a. a Again, this could have been a pay per view match. Like this would have oh, been God, a totally yeah. incredible pay per view match. This could have been Scott, a title defense. This could have been. You realize how huge Scott Hall is is when he's in there with Goldberg and he's a couple inches taller. It's one of the great things, like unremembered things in wrestling history, is that Scott Hall's like six foot seven. And, like, no one ever talks about it. He's as tall as Hulk Hogan. It's just he spent so much time hanging out with Kevin Nash, you didn't really realize that. Yeah, he's like, he looks next to Kevin Nash like the one, two, three could looks next to him. But that's not fair. Everyone looks that way next to Kevin Nash. Um, Then we've got Juventud Guerrera versus Psychosis, which is some pretty impressive talent for a cool-down match. This is... I have trouble remembering where either two of these are guys are in their like arc in WCW. Cause uh, it just kind of lost in- his mask a couple years or a couple months before this. So he's get, he's getting a push. They gave him a pretty nice push after he unmasked. I think this is like right after he beat Reese, who was you know, seven feet tall. Yeah. And this is right at the beginning of the juice. Yeah. Like this is before it becomes like Vince Russo gets a hold of it and it becomes like a rock parody. But like, I have so many fond memories of the juice Juventud Guerrera. Uh, they do some impressive dives, and then Hoovy hits the 450 splash for the pin. Uh, the flock comes down, and they beat up both guys. I, if I'm remembering right, this is just a continuation of Hoovy's feud with Reese. They just had him beat. They just having him beat guys way bigger than him, and you know Reese is gigantic. I mean, that's cool. I mean, it's give him a giant slayer gimmick. It's pretty rad. Uh, they show Goldberg being Raven for the U.S. title. I love that match. That is one of the craziest crowd reactions I've ever seen. That's another one that kind of felt like it could have been a pay-per-view because Raven yep. had so much heat at the time. Everybody hated Raven. Yeah, and that was, again, they could have stretched that out for several months by having Goldberg have to run through the entire flock. Like, like around Bash, this is probably about when he should have won the U.S. title. Yeah. Like, they should have just done all of this slower. Uh, they show uh, the next up is Jim Duggan against the Giant. Uh, I don't think this is going to end well for Duggan. Why the fuck did this match happen, Steve? Good win for the Giant over a legend. Is it? Jim Duggan in 1998. Duggan at one point goes to do his knee drop, but the giant just like blocks it with his giant hand. I've never seen anyone block a knee drop with their hand before. It was terrifying. Uh, Giant then hits a choke slam and gets the pin. 
Uh, Giant gets on the mic and calls out Kevin Green, who shows up in like shorts and like white boat shoes and clotheslines the Giant out of the ring. Like, this is some serious, like, Ric Flair circa 1992 shit. Straight off the golf course. Yeah. Um, Then we've got Jim Neidhart against Diamond Dallas Page. Jim Neidhart. Again, there's some people getting checks on this show just as favors. Like, stealing money every time he cashes his check. Holy shit. Like, why couldn't you just combine... I don't know. Like... DDP did not need to have a match on this show. He's already been on it like five times. The Giant didn't need to have a match on the show. I guess you, you're just building up to him and Kevin Green, but... Yeah. None of these matches need to happen. DDP goes over with the Diamond Cutter in less than a minute. There's nothing to it. Nope. I mean, the pop the Diamond Cutter gets is, as always, amazing. Uh, they show Goldberg's victory over Conan at the Great American Bash. And then the Wolf Pack come out. We've got Sting and Nash as the tag champions, and they've also got Conan and Lex Luger with them. Um, Conan gets on the mic, starts to do his thing, but then the flock show up to interrupt. Um, is the Wolf Pack the coolest stable you've ever seen or the lamest? Ooh, that really depends on which person the camera's on. Like Nash and Conan are super cool. What do you think of red face paint Sting? I think it sucks. <laughs> you remember, have you ever seen him with his super trashy goatee? I have. Where he yeah. looks like Mephisto? Yeah. It's not good. <laughs> and uh, Lex Luger, like, in his black jeans trying to be cool, super lame. It literally just looks like Sting and Luger are like their dads chaperoning them to the prom. Like, this is horrible. Uh, we've then got... I, I, I'm not even, was it Lex Luger and Sting? <laughs> this yes. match was so quick, I couldn't even keep track of who was in it. It Luger basically didn't even take place. <laughs> Luger and Sting against Sick Boy and Kidman. Like, it's literally just like Scorpion Death Drop, Torture Rack. They win in 30 seconds. Like, just a super quick spot for the Wolf Pack on this show. But my God, are these guys over? I didn't even realize that the Wolf Pack had started yet. Like, they are wildly over it's stunning that they have goldberg and the wolf pack going on at this and malone and ddp well they just have way too many baby faces they don't have any heels yeah that's the crazy thing with like any credibility they have hogan they have the giant they have bret hart but isn't that wild that a year ago this place was 100 percent heels everyone was trying to join the heel stable the only babyface in the whole company was Lex Luger. And now everyone's a babyface. Yeah. <laughs> Which is a big problem when you're about to put the belt on a babyface champion. Something they probably should have thought of. Show a replay of Goldberg beating Hall earlier in the night. And Goldberg versus Hogan is next. Uh, we go to commercial. We come back. Goldberg comes out. They go to commercial again. Really milking this, but it's working. Say I, you know a guy's over when they can do his whole big ass entrance twice in one show. <laughs> Hogan comes out, the camera gets right in his face. He says he's gonna kick Goldberg's butt. Gets in the ring. Um, the crowd pops for the bell. I love that moment. 
it's everything you need to know. Like, there's a couple of signs that you have something going on. If somebody, if two guys go face to face and you hear that buzz, you're like, oh, that's good. When two guys get close to each other and you just kind of hear a murmur because people are like talking like, oh, I wonder what's going to happen. That's good. If the bell rings and people pop just for the existence of this match, you've got legendary shit, ladies and gentlemen. Uh, Do you remember when they did the Shield and the Wyatt family? Yes. And the crowd was literally chanting, this is awesome, just when they both first got in the ring. Yeah, this they chanted this is awesome to the concept of the match before it started. Um. Tanae says that many people would say WCW is currently third in the pecking order between, be, behind the NWO Hollywood and the Wolf Pack, but that Goldberg could turn that all around tonight. And he's not wrong, because, yeah, when you look at WCW at this point, it's pretty thin. They've got Goldberg and DDP, and that's about it. I do find it interesting that it's just kind of assumed that Goldberg's part of the WCW shit. I don't believe he had ever really he made a statement on it. that. He's never spoken. To my yeah. knowledge. Yeah. So they're just like, oh man, this guy's for Team WCW. What a great win for WCW. As far as you fucking know, he's with the WWF. You don't know shit. Uh, Goldberg overpowers Hogan. Hogan uh, trips Goldberg and wears him down. He gets the weight belt off and he whips, Ho- whips Goldberg with it. Goldberg recovers. He gets the belt away from him but he throws it away rather than using it. That gets a nice pop. Yeah, it does. Uh, Goldberg hits a shoulder block. Hogan bails out to the floor. Hogan Goldberg follows him out. Hogan hits him with a chair. Hogan slams him. He hits a leg drop. He hits another leg drop. Hennig comes down to the ring, but DDP and Malone follow him down. Um, Hogan covers after a third leg drop, and Goldberg kicks out. Meanwhile, on the floor, Malone hits Hennig with the diamond cutter. Gigantic pop. How long do you think he trained to hit that diamond cutter? Page must have made him do it 500 times before he could do it on TV. You're not going to fuck up my finisher on live television. Do it again. Yeah. At this point, in the back of your mind, you're still wondering... What if they fuck Goldberg? But even you're just wondering, like, what if all the NWO guys run in and he wins by disqualification? See, my assumption, if I had watched the show live, which I didn't, would have been, oh, of course they're going to fuck Goldberg. Like, this is Nitro. They're not going to switch the fucking title here. Seems insane. So, like, I would have just been, like, waiting for, like, oh, this has been a lot of fun. But, like, okay, here comes the fuckery. Hogan is distracted by what's going on on the floor. Meanwhile, Goldberg has popped up and is setting up for the spear, and the crowd is going insane. Just the act of him, like, bending his knees and stalking Hogan, and the crowd goes wild. It's special, man. And, like, Hogan's milking it like only Hogan knows how to do. Um, Hogan finally turns around. Goldberg hits him with the spear. At this point, Heenan just takes over the commentary. Like, yeah, nobody says another word yeah. for the rest of the time. Yeah. Heenan is just taking us home from here. And he's just like, he's like, now finish him off. This is your career on the line. This is it. You got to get him now. At some point, I think the only thing that Tanae said or that Shivani says is they're going to pop. They're going to go wild when yes. he gets them up. And then he gets him up. I think he, I think that was Heenan. 
Oh, that, was that Heenan too? Yeah, I think that was Heenan. Shivani gets in a nice line when they sign off, but yeah, yes, line, that's it's right. a, Heenan just Heenan's just like get out of my way. I got this one, and he does. This is one of yeah. his best calls ever. Yeah, he sets up for the jackhammer, and yeah, Heenan goes. The play this place is gonna erupt when he picks him up, and of course it does. It does indeed. He gets him up, you know, he marches around the ring holding him up. He is screaming like, no, slam him. You got to do it now. He hits the jackhammer. He gets the one, two, three. Goldberg wins. One of the biggest pops I've ever heard. It's it's a pop of catharsis. It's yeah. not just that, like, the guy that they love won the title. That's awesome. Finally, it's the idea that, like, finally beat Hogan, vanquished him. Didn't just beat him, dominated his yeah. ass. In five minutes. Him. Yes. Like, his, it feels like the reign of Hogan is over, even though it's not at all. Like, that's not. Yeah. It, it never does. But can you imagine if this exact match in this exact way had happened at, like, Starcade? And it's like, it almost is like a refutation of the Sting fuckery that it, wasn't nearly as good it, as we wanted. It does feel like a make good for Sting, because this should have been, been what they did with Sting. Like, yeah. Sting should have just destroyed Hogan and tapped him out with the Scorpion. I mean, and Hogan never would have done this. What if it had literally just been Spear Jackhammer? What if it had been, like, the Brock match? If Hogan had been smart, that's exactly how he yeah. would have done it. Because all you could have said was, like, I wasn't ready. I just yeah. turned around into a spear. What the fuck? Yeah, exactly. You could have done the whole, like, the NWO guys come out before the match. And then Malone and Rod or Malone and DDP show up and fight him off. And while, like, Hogan's distracted and he tur- the match starts and he turns around and Goldberg spears him. And, yeah, that gives him the perfect out. He's like, oh, that wasn't fair. Like, I wasn't ready. The referee didn't let me get in position. Like, that was bullshit. I should still be the champion. The NWO guys come sprinting back towards the ring once they realize what's happened, but it's too late. Yeah. Goldberg's the champ. Um. Yeah, the crowd reaction is crazy, and like the cheers just don't stop. It just goes on and on for minutes and minutes. People um, are on their feet just like screaming into the sky. Like it's something yeah. that you just don't see. It's a perfect moment. Like, like there are a few truly perfect moments in wrestling history. In as much there's so much wrong surrounding this one that it gets lost that this is one of them, but it's beautiful. Um, Goldberg grabs both the U.S. title and the world title to celebrate with them both because he's now double champion. Um, and now it's show- impossible not to think of him as the ultimate warrior because yeah. the last time Hogan did a job this definitive was exactly the same way. Yes. The only thing we're missing is Hogan doesn't like hand him the belt and then steal all his glory as he sadly walks to the back. He should have. I'm sure he crossed his mind. <laughs> he should have just tried to recreate the warrior moment here. Um. You know, he's posing, the pyro goes off, you know, Shivani, you know, thanks everybody, you know, for Tony Shivani, for Bobby the Brain Heenan, for Mike Tanay, for Larry Zabisco. Good night, America. Goldberg's the champion. And that's such a beautiful moment because, like, the way that he says it, it sounds almost like all is well with the world. Yeah. It's like it's like the series finale. Like, this is feels like we're closing the book, like on the NWO here. Of course we're not, and that's part of the problem. 
again, you could do this exact same commentary, the same match, the same everything in exactly the same way in the main event of Starcade, and it would have been perfect. And no one would have had anything negative to say about it. Yeah, And then Hogan actually could have gone away for a while. Because right now they've got all this stuff. They have all this stuff for Hogan after this. They've got... He has to do the Bash at the Beach match. They've got the plan for the Jay Leno match. They're bringing in the Warrior for that feud. Like Hogan is like he's his dance card's full for the next couple months, so he has to stick around after this and overshadow Goldberg. If he drops the belt at Starcade, he can take the next six months off and just give Goldberg room to breathe. Yeah, because think about it. What does Hulk Hogan do in the year 1999? Jack oh, shit. Yeah. yeah, nothing good. And it's just, it's hard for me not to dwell on that. Like, as much as I, we said that, like, we're just going to be in the moment, we're just going to talk about how beautiful this was, and it was. It's just, if you ported the arena, the entrances, the matches, the commentary, the build, the whole rest of the card, this would have been one of, like, the two best Starcades of all time if this exact show was just Starcade. Yeah. It just yeah, and think of the man, the Starcade you could have booked this year with like Hogan against Goldberg, Sting against Bret Hart, you know, Hall against Nash, like Steiner. Basically, and most of it's just like the card they did at Halloween Havoc instead, like Steiner against Steiner. Like you could book an incredible card. And as hot as they were, they probably should have booked the Georgia Dome for Starcade and tried to sell the place out. I think they could have properly promoted. Like, of course, like all yeah. this did was prove that, like, hey, wait, maybe we can actually do that. Let's give it a shot. Why not? Yeah. They, I mean, they sold thirty-five thousand tickets in like six weeks here. Like, they didn't pr- like there was no special promotion here other than they were promoting Goldberg versus Hogan as the dark match, but. Yeah, with yeah. six months of promotion for Goldberg versus Hogan, the end of the NWO. Yeah, and all those other huge matches too. Like, yeah, they could have sold, they could have packed the dome for that. And you could have piled a bunch of extra shit on it, like Goldberg's WCW's last chance. If he loses, yeah. WCW dies. Yeah, the NWO gets to take over Nitro if Hogan wins. And, like, you could do that believably because he feels like the last chance. Yeah. Everyone else has had their shot at Hogan and lost. Yeah, this is our last hope. This is our last dance. This is our last chance. For love. So, yeah, uh, as amazing a moment as this was, it really is kind of the beginning of the end of WCW. Oh, man. And we've covered shows from that the rest of Goldberg's title reign, and it's just depressing. Uh, Yeah. Like they just have, they don't have any idea what to do with him. They had no plan. They weren't planning to put the belt on him this early. So like, if nobody ready for him to fight, it's not a coincidence that easily the year in wrestling history we've covered the most on this show is 1998. We're we're literally almost out of 1998 shows to cover. (laughs) Just about everything. 1999. I don't even think we've barely fucking scratched the surface because it's we've done sucks. a few. We have done, we have done a lot of WCW. We've done a few of the WWF shows, but yeah, but like, like isn't it. that amazing that 1998 is the greatest year? WCW here at this moment is probably the coolest and best wrestling product that has ever been presented ever. And One yeah, year from now, who gives their, a shit? And yet they're getting their ass kicked in the ratings by the WWF. Is like how much they just can't catch a break. Like. You transplant this company five years in either direction, they are so dominant. But I do think it's just so, the wrong time. There's also something about the show that I really noticed as we were watching it. 
like there's two big storylines going on here. And I think that's pretty common for WCW is like for the most part, they'd have like two big storylines and maybe like one or two like minor storylines. What's going on in WWF at this time is like 500 storylines oh, yeah. at the same time. It's like a totally different kind of television. The Brawl for All is also going on on Raw right now. There you go. Like that by itself. <laughs> Just throwing shit at the wall. But yeah, I mean, that's kind of what you fall into is WWE's writing. And they do have some other fun storylines going on here. Like the Malenko Jericho thing is good. Um yeah. Chavo well, think, and Eddie are having a nice program. But yeah, it's like they're not really doing anything with Bret Hart. They're not doing much with Booker at this point. Like there's not a ton of direction or momentum outside of those top two programs. And I think what the big thing is, is that the big programs they're doing are amazing. And the wrestlers and the promos, that's all good. But like Raw at this point, you genuinely feel like you can't miss a moment of it because yeah. anything it's can a, happen. It's a story. Like, it's yeah. an ongoing story each week with Austin and Hogan and Undertaker and Kane and Mankind. And, yeah, you don't quite have that same level here. Like, they're doing a decent job of mixing. Like, But the, Gold, like the Goldberg thing just got thrown in there. So, like, it's good that they included DDP and Malone in there. But, like, before this, Goldberg had no involvement with them. Like, Goldberg was just feuding with Kurt Hennig before this. Yeah, and week in and week out. And being three hours hurts that, too. Because there's every week, there's at least it's, an hour that doesn't fucking matter. No. It's hard enough to write two hours of Nitro and two hours of Thunder and two hours of Saturday night to add a third hour of Nitro was insane. Yeah, and so that's why you get the people who would flip back and forth between the two in, like, 97 – it's difficult to turn the channel off of WWF because so much weird shit is going on. Yeah. And then you turn it back to WCW and it's fucking Kidman and Sick Boy for 28 yeah. seconds. And you're like, all right, I'll just flip like, it back. Yeah, I liked WCW, but even by this point, it was starting to get more to the point where I would watch the first hour of Nitro. But once Raw started, unless there was something really dumb on Raw, I was mostly watching Raw. Like I would flip back to Nitro during the commercials or if something stupid was happening. But yeah, I mean, the even by you know by this point, even as somebody who's like more inclined towards the WCW style and product, Raw was blowing them away. And what people should have realized at the time was that that wasn't tenable. Like that wasn't going to last forever. Like the combination they hit on with the two Vinces writing yeah. this like incredible weaved storyline that involved forty different people and continued on, that was eventually going to come to an end and peter out. It lasted way longer than it, any storyline like that ever had. But, like, trying to replicate that was not the solution because no one ever did. Like, they just happened to hit upon the greatest, most interesting television product anyone's ever produced. Yeah. So, yeah. Like, like it feels like with all WCW shows from this time, it's bittersweet because it was so incredible. But it's also you can't help but think about how it ended. You know, enjoy the good times while they last because it'll be over sooner than you think. Yeah. Eric Bischoff toasting champagne in the back of the Georgia yeah. Dome, and a year from now he'll be he's fly fishing he's, in Wyoming. Yeah, literally, barely a year, like barely a year after this, he's fired, which is unfathomable. Because like on this night, Ted Turner might have been there this night. Like I guarantee you, like Harvey Schiller and a bunch of the Turner executives were there this night. Like on this night, Eric Bischoff was the king. Yeah, this is a prestige moment. Like yeah. this is like, we want to show our know. investors that like. One of our products drew six, like 60,000 at the Georgia Dome. 
Yeah. You can just imagine Bischoff at the curtain, like looking out at the crowd at the start of the show and just being like, how, like, what have we done here? Like, how did we like thinking about where they started when they were like bringing in homeless people off the street to fill seats at center stage in Atlanta. And now they're drawing 40,000 at the Georgia dome. And he pulled it off in three years. It's an unbelievable rise and somehow an even faster fall. Crazy. Yeah. So, yeah, I think that's a wrap for this one. I mean, if you've never watched this, I think it's definitely, I mean, it's a long show and you probably want to, you know, make some use of the fast forward button, but it's probably worth checking out. Yeah. I had never seen it before and I had a great time watching it. I really did. Yeah. I mean, I'm sure everybody's seen the Goldberg Hogan match, but they really do a great job of building to it with all the stuff they do. Like they really do make it special. Yep. Oh, next time, something that maybe is not quite as special. We're going to be covering Beach Blast 1992, returning to the Bill Watts era of WCW. Um, And we've got a very Bill Watts main event as the Steiner brothers take on Terry Gordy and Steve Williams, the so-called miracle violence connection. Yes. Uh, Yeah. If you want to see some really big dudes hitting each other really hard, that's a match for you. Just slapping slabs of meat. Yeah. Um, uh, We've also got uh, Sting versus Cactus Jack in a no disqualification match. That's a fun one. Yep. Cactus Jack said up until the time where he wrestled Shawn Michaels at Mind Games, this was the best match of his career. Yeah, that sounds right. Um, and uh, Ricky Steamboat versus Rick Rude in a 30-minute Iron Man match for the U.S. title. There are two 30-minute yeah. goddamn matches on this show. That's and a 20-minute Scotty Flamingo match. Yeah, plus Scotty the Body Flamingo um, against, I believe, Brian Pillman. Yep, Brian Pillman. Title. Yeah. And uh, the Dangerous Alliance in action. All that and more next time on the LawCast. Thank you for listening. We'll see you again next time.